This is Beyond Busy. I'm Graham Alcott. I'm the author of a number of books, including the global bestseller, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. And I'm the founder of Think Productive. We help people to make space for what matters and get more done. And we partner with some of the world's leading companies who share our mission to transform the world of work. Beyond Busy is where I explore the often messy truths and contradictory relationships around topics like work-life balance, happiness and success, and explore with interesting people what makes them tick. In short, this is where we ask the bigger questions about work. My guest today is Matt Rudd. Matt is a writer and columnist and deputy editor of the Sunday Times magazine. He's also the author of several books, his latest being Man Down, Why Men Are Unhappy and What We Can Do About It. So in this episode, we talk about mental health, shared parental leave and taking paternity leave more seriously. We talk about the trap of busyness and why you're better off with a bronze medal than a silver one and much more. The book is entertaining and thoughtful, just as you'll find Matt here. So let's get into it. This is Matt Rudd. So I'm with Matt Rudd. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. I'm looking forward to this. I'm going to be a ninja. I want to be a ninja by the end of it. I'm <laughs> well, let's see. You're the master and I'll be the apprentice for this for this conversation. Well, let's see what we could do. So, um, I mean, they say that the um, collective, collective noun for um, uh, lots of middle-aged men is a podcast. So here we are <laughs> as the middle-aged men on a podcast. Um, and we're going to talk about your book. Um, so the reason I introduced it like that is your book is Man Down. Why men are unhappy and what we can do about it. So, um, yeah, it just feels like a really important conversation to have. Um, should we just start with the, I guess the that central sort of question? Because I think you can, you know you break it down and there's lots of um, subjects in the book that um, sort of spring off from that, which just provides some really interesting narrative. But you kind of also say at the beginning. I'm not going to really answer the question as well. So like if I said to you now, like, why why are men unhappy and what can we do about it? What's the, what's the sort of first answer that you'd give before we get into the detail? I think perhaps I should start by explaining what happened that led to this, because um, I, I was I, I didn't have a kind of crisis or something, some, something obvious where, where I was kind of forced into a, a reckoning with my life. What happened is I was just waking up at three o'clock every morning with these kind of circular catastrophic thoughts. And it was all, what if this happens? What if that happens? And my normal response over, over the years was just to kind of find ways to block all of those things out. And in my mid forties, it just became so much that um, I was I was in a real state, but not not an obvious crisis where you have to take action. And I tried everything. I tried self help books. I tried, you know, lycra biking, all these different physical exercise. Um, I tried heavy drinking. I tried no drinking. <laughs> I kind of I'd done it all. But what I hadn't done is kind of sat down and thought it through. My approach was all about blocking. And so in a panic, in this state, my what I did is I started talking to other friends who, to me, looked like they were, you know, sailing through midlife happily. And it was interesting. You, you, you'll know this when you see friends in the pub. It's often quite sort of superficial. You just have have a few jokes. How are you? Fine. All, you know, and, and that's it. But when I kind of forced them to to have a serious conversation about why they were managing better than I was. It was clear that they weren't. Mm, that yeah. resulted in, a, in an article for my newspaper. And I was really genuinely worried before we published it, because here I am, white, middle-aged man, apparently successful, having a big old whinge about how awful it is to be a middle-aged man who's doing okay. And I reported all these other men who on paper looked successful and their own experiences, their inner turmoil. We published it and I was expecting a backlash and it was completely the opposite. And actually half of the people who've got in touch since have been people who are unfortunately married to all these midlife men <laughs> and children. So, so yeah. then that became 
became the book. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because yeah, there's there's that sense when sometimes I get asked to either be involved with or uh, speak to or whatever, um, you know, like men's groups and like the idea of men's groups, you know, I would like class myself as someone who's very interested in gender. I would say that I was a feminist, like et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it feels like there's um, like I often have a bit of a nervousness about discussing what it is to be a man or to be in or, or, or like the nature of what being a man is. Like it feels like something that, you know, like somehow because because there's that sort of emotional disconnect we just we don't talk enough about how the idea of what a man is has evolved and changed quite a lot over the last two three four decades yeah i i think that's that's very true uh, uh, what was interesting and I, and over the last three or four years i've spoken to hundreds of men i would say is that there is this idea that we need to be kind of strong and silent and and power on but once you, once it, it doesn't take long. Actually, it's a sort of a second pint thing, or a second lemonade, or whatever you want. Sort of break through that. I mustn't talk about it. And then, and then, that in my experience, there was this kind of great sort of opening up. And for me, that was. It's a maybe. It's quite a specific way, you know, as someone who interviews people for their job. But that was what started to make me feel better was the realization and it's a cliche but that we're not we're not alone and i've been yeah. to men's groups as well and it does it is it can feel quite forced but i can only say that i'm so glad that i started talking about my own even though it doesn't seem like a lot even as i keep saying there's no big crisis um i have started to feel better since i found out i wasn't alone and that every single other bloke who looks like they've got it all together is in the same is in the same boat and i've had so many emails and uh letters from you know from women who because this is the other thing it's off the, the the gender thing we're often seen as if we're in opposition so if i start talking about my situation that is in some way sort of not taking the opposite sex uh, into account but we all you know a lot of us live in units with our with our loved one with our wives and partners and I think you know it's it's up it's up to women to work on what you know what they need and it's also you know men need to do the work as well and it's taken me you know it took me 47 years to get to that point where I kind of finally paused had a look around and thought, no, I need to do something about this myself. And it's also, yeah, like you say, though, it's not a binary thing, is it? So it's, I, I'm very passionate in the idea that it's up to men to play their role in advancing things like, you know, closing the gender pay gap, for example. And so it's, it also stands to reason that it's up to all of us to, to look at mental health for men like like none of the like often these things are couched in this idea of binary like if you're in favor of even discussing the emotional well-being of men then you're somehow anti-women or anti-feminist and like actually it's about a like we need a kind of collective viewpoint on all of these issues right like that's kind of kind of the point right yeah it, that's that's exactly it and i'm lucky enough to be married to someone who has been on her own journey and she she does a lot of work and I've until I reached the this point I was I don't think I was dismissive I just wasn't interested and and she you know she was working really hard at sorting out her own mental health and I just thought that's her journey leave her to that and so, so it is what I'm trying to say is we each need to do our own our own work. Yeah. I didn't think that was yeah. necessary. I thought my job, and this is something that's been was really in common with all the people I spoke to, was to, you know the sort of very traditional. I must be a provider. I must keep it all together. I've you know I've got three kids, so I've got to make sure they're provided for, um, and that was my role. And actually, it felt too indulgent to start thinking about myself. And I think that's the big mistake that a lot of men, particularly midlife men, make. But 
because of the way society is structured, it's completely understandable. And it felt reading the book like there, I mean, you talk to a lot of people who like who who like you say on paper they've got everything going and then what's what they're actually expressing is a very a very kind of deep sense of malaise and sort of not not feeling like their life is amounting to anything even though they're ticking all the boxes career wise and 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 sort of you know in their personal lives and so on did you i'm just interested in what that was like in terms of your process writing the book so as you as you're kind of talking to these people who as you say, should in many ways have, you know, the best sort of ratings of happiness and should be the most satisfied with their lives. And there's just something really uneasy about some of the quotes in the book. Did you, did it sort of contribute to a sense of malaise for you? Did it, did it kind of set off, um, you know, and I know you're writing it also through COVID. Did it set off any sense of, um, you know, what is this all about? Yeah, well, that's where I, I had that kind of feeling already. And uh, and for me, it was it was amazing to realise that no matter how far up whatever ladder you're going, um, that's that's not that's got nothing to do with happening. And I I intentionally focused on people who you know on paper were successful because you know this is the sort of the luckiest group in one of the luckiest parts of the world. Um, Imagine if those people weren't happy, and you know, therefore, the the whole model that we've constructed, we need to think about. So, I, you know, I talk about how, from a very young age, we're taught that um, that success equals happiness. It starts with the gold star at primary school, then you've got to pass your exams. Then, you know, if you're one of these guys, you probably go to university. Then you're at the bottom of the career ladder so you fight your way up it's at every sort of five year stage of life there's something in this sort of short to medium future which you have to be aiming for and and until you've ticked that part of part of your life you you can't find happiness so it was ridiculous i was i was speaking to people you know i spoke to a 23 year old young Oxford graduate who was just not envisaging I asked him about happiness and he he was just think he's you know setting out to be a lawyer and he was saying that's just not even on the horizon maybe in 10 mm. years time and it was repeated over and over yeah. until you hit the mid 40s where you have this choice I as I see it you you can either plow on to the gold watch or you can stop and everything falls apart. And it's really quite a shocking, it's a shocking realisation that that's, that's, those are your two options. And there were, you know, there are men who go and sit in the bath so they can have a bit of time and space to themselves, or they go and get a single ticket to the cinema. And there's kind of these desperate attempts to, um, to, to have a little bit of me time because, and that's all they'll give themselves because, they feel like if they think about their situation too much, the whole house of cards will fall down. And you said something in the book that it was along the lines of, like, the few months that you spent writing it was like stepping off the hamster wheel, at least on Fridays, Saturdays and Sundays. Yeah. Um, yeah. So was that was that your own version of that in terms of, you know, I was able to to kind of take the take the step off but obviously you're doing it to write a book which is which is again you know it's a success signifier to many people isn't it it's the, it's the chicken's way of doing it but um, as as we were talking before before we started recording it's um it when you read about you know you read you, you read a lot of stories about people who say i the narrative is i wasn't happy so I changed this and now I'm happy. And the thing that they're changing, it might be, you know, I chucked in my boring city job and became a self-help guru. Or I chucked this in and now I'm living in Bali and I'm an entrepreneur or whatever it is. And for, I, for me, when I read those stories, it's just completely unattainable because you've 
you know, you've got your mortgage, you've got your kids, you've got um, a job that you're kind of, you're no longer really climbing the ladder, but if you don't climb the ladder, you're viewed with suspicion. You've got all of these, 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 it's plate spinning. And so when some sod tells you go and be an entrepreneur in Bali, you just immediately shut down. So yeah, I, when I was writing the book, it meant I didn't work Fridays and that was quite nice. But of course I worked, I was a big chicken. I had still had the safety nets and I still had the job. Um, I, and I think the, the realization is that it is a good idea to think about these things and the house of cards won't necessarily collapse if you do. Uh, you don't need to make some dramatic decision in your life to find happiness. But it, it, it well, for me, it was at least two years of, of, not the writing of it, but two years of feeling quite nervous riding my circular catastrophic thoughts through to some kind of sensible analysis of where I was. And there's, I mean, there's some really just incredible little sort of thought experiments and then backed up by interesting research and stuff. And it, it sort of takes you on a bit of a journey through the book. And one of the sections that really struck me was you've got a chapter called Men and Babies. And do you know what it really reminded me of? I saw the comedian Russell Kane a little while ago and he was talking about, you know, he's a really good sort of observational comic, Russell Kane, and, and sort of, you know, good at really just sort of describing back to you these, you know, these things that we uh, kind of universal experiences. And he said one of the few things that he's never really seen observational comedy done about, but it's such a universal thing for dads, is that feeling when, you know, your partner's just given birth and then you go home and then you're just totally useless at home. Like they're still in the hospital and you're, and you're kind of like, what can I do? Put up a shelf? What am I going to Like, what am I going to do? And all of the sort of systems in your brain are, are kind of saying to you, need to be useful, need to be useful because you're in this high stress mode. And then you get home and it's like, I think I'll batch cook some soup or something. And, and you know, it, it, there's some really interesting interviews in there that uh, brought back a lot for me around my own experiences with that where it's really just looking at, you know, just the whole the whole notion of what is a man's role around birth and then how does that get supported through work? Um, and the bit that I was really interested in was the bit that you talked about with the ways to fix the ideas around shared parental leave because it feels to me like that was a really, like, good intention but actually had some sort of unintended consequences that weren't so great like the idea that once you share that parental leave between mums and dads what ha what happens is you think you're valuing dads more but actually what you're doing is taking that away from the mums and devaluing mums and stuff and it hasn't really worked do you want to talk about your ideas around what to do differently around um sort of workplaces of supporting pregnancy because i just thought that was amazing yeah well we the good news is that in the time you know my eldest is turning 16 this year and I had a week off for the for him, and then a couple of weeks for the next two. And you know, we live in kind of small nuclear families. They say it takes a village to raise a baby, or whatever the expression is, and that's not how things work. You know, fifteen years ago, one week off, and then my wife is on her own for for the next for the next fifteen years, um, and. And I just had to go back to the, the office and my colleagues went, everything okay? And I said, yes, fine, and that's it. You know, maybe someone got a cake. I can't remember. Mm, um, yeah. The good news is it's, it is dramatically cha changing. We are getting more Swedish. And as you'll know, in that chapter, I went and spent a, a bit of time with the most annoying dads in Britain, which are the they work for an insurance company, which announced that it was doing giving everyone parental leave, regardless of gender. Um, yeah. This is Aviva, right? Yeah, Aviva, that's right. And yeah. it was, you know, so most of the dads took six months and they were just, they just had the temerity to sit there and describe how wonderful the first few months of their new family's lives had been. Uh, you know, they, they were able, you know, this wasn't kind of trying to interfere with the, the mother's primary role. But it was they were there to support. 
they created you know a, a relation a deeper relationship with their kids and off, off they go they're set up and Aviva said to me that their pro, you know the productivity of their of their employees had gone up since they introduced this policy which is amazing because when we write articles in the paper about this isn't it shouldn't we be more scandinavian shouldn't we allow dads to be involved in early parenting as well you always get people going well how are we going to pay for that and oh well, it was fine in my day and you know it's the mother should be quite traditional views what it does is you know it just sets you off it, and and also it gives you a little this this is going to sound really wrong but it it because it's not a break but it gives you a break from work so you come back you know, all excited, probably a bit relieved to be getting back to work. And that's all good for the em- employer. So I, I would be really surprised if in another 10 years time, we're not, we don't have proper shared. It's one of those things where there's, there's no, there's just no downside as I can see it. That's the thing. So Aviva's thing is 52 weeks um, leave regardless of you know um whether that's maternity or paternity 20 26 weeks of that on full pay yeah and then what you found was that two-thirds of staff of either that have that as an option take it and only five percent stick to the idea of two weeks so it's clearly a popular thing and if anyone's listening to this or watching this you know in the hr departments of of large corporates then I guess the message is go and look at what Aviva are doing, right, in that area. And since I wrote that, I, I, you know, they'll have got that was quite a new policy. Um, but there have been lots of lots of other companies. I mean, it has been smaller to middle-sized companies are doing it, but it's just it's just definitely going to happen. And don't and don't forget the other, th- you know, this I've pretty much finished this book uh, in the first wave of the pandemic, and a lot of the things I'm whinging about in Man Down suddenly and rather alarmingly happened like a sort of magic wand. You know, they're, they're asking mm. for a kind of a more flexible, porous relationship between yeah. work and life, something you talk about a lot. Um, having a role in early parenting, being at home, some, all of that stuff suddenly happened. It's not quite how one would have wanted it to happen, but it ha- there's a lot of very dramatic... Uh, social change that's been forced upon us by by the uh, pandemic. I just hope we can sort of, you know, the the positives of that can be can be kept and sort of consolidated. It's so true, isn't it? And when you think back to, so one of the stats that really shocks me in the book was in 1982, 43% of dads had never changed a nappy, and then now it's like three percent. So I suppose when you think about it like that we've been moving the workforce away from it being you know that sort of traditional family model of of man is provider woman is parent and you know things have really moved on from there but then we necessarily haven't been you know talking about how the how the policies support that and then what is the what's the workplace's role in supporting that so is there anything else along those lines that you think is is changing that we need to think about and and do more of to kind of shift shift things uh, you know just in a better direction i mean the the government doesn't hasn't really had much of a role they they did introduce i think in 2015 they introduced kind of shared parenting leave uh regulations but it doesn't work because it was kind of statutory pay so you're asking both parents to to effectively not have a salary and that's just not going to happen so it has to come it has to come from employers it's interesting at the moment you you know there's a lot of talk about how well this week at least how excited everyone is to get back to the office and how tired we all are of working from home which is absolutely understandable but um i've been going back to the office for months now and what we're doing is we're having a kind of there's a sort of hybrid system emerging where we all do two or three days a week in the office. And it's just, yeah. you know, and if you need just before the pandemic, I think, you know, caution, huge stereotype alert. Um, dads escaped a lot of the kind of 
the labour around. It was still the mums that tended to organise the play dates and um, the, the late drop-offs and the rugby matches and all of, all of that stuff. And I think, you know, it, that, that well, certainly for me and the, the dads in my area, we're all, we're all much more involved because we don't have the excuse of being in the office all the time anymore. We're, we're at home, so of course we'll arrange that thing and fill out that form and all the endless bureaucracy from schools. Um, and that's just only a good thing again because, it, you know, it's, it's, it's more equitable in a very basic way. But it, I think a lot of the dads, you know, this idea that men are being dragged, you know, into... The, all of this parenting work reluctantly is completely wrong. I think, you know, those no one changing a nappy in the 1980s, no dads changing a nappy in the 80s. That's just a really sad situation. You know, we're, we need to break that cycle for all the other reasons in the book. That I'm talking, you know, this, that, that's all linked to the reason why, you know, men have such high rates of unhappiness, of depression and, you know, worse yeah and in the book you talk about a lot of the things that you've tried and a lot of the things that other people that you're interviewing have tried uh to kind of mitigate that sense of malaise or despondency um what do you think is ultimately at the the sort of root cause of that then so why 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 are men so unable to really you know sort of articulate feelings or certainly to do that on the first pint or in the first first part of a conversation i think it goes back uh, i haven't really managed to explain this right yet but the the whole the whole way things are set up it's that um you need a particular job or a particular you know you need to keep up with the neighbors you need a particular car you there's a pursuit and it and it's it's too simplistic to say you know this that it's a pursuit of materialism because it's really more complicated than that it might be the type of job you have or where you live how, who your friends are the, it's not strictly materialism it's this it's a comparison so you're it's it's yeah. when i said earlier it's all about passing tests what that really means is there's pressure to to do better than the person next to you to succeed, um, and I, that my favourite example of that is the that study they did of to go completely off track. The study they did of Olympic medalists, at the, the bronze medalists. You must, yeah. I'm sure you've yeah. talked about this before. But the amazing thing that they photographed all of their faces on the podiums and. The gold medalists were really happy, big smiles. The bronze medalists were really happy, big smiles. The silver medalists had this kind of rictus grin. And it's if anyone gets a chance to look it up, it's really funny looking at the miserable silver medalists and how much less happy they are than the bronze medalists because they were so near to getting a gold and the bronze guys are just relieved that they got on the podium at all. They're just happy to yeah, be and it's a it's a yeah. really simplistic way of looking at it, but it's also so so true. If you're constantly comparing yourselves to other people, and society and all you know from from school all the way through is teaching you what success looks like, um, then then it's you know you're never going to be happy, and you know when you pop up when it finally just becomes impossible to you know, carry on. There isn't a next immediate five-year plan. You've, you know, you've had kids, you've got a family, you've, you've, you're living somewhere, you know, whatever it is, whatever you've ticked, as, there's nothing obvious next. And you're suddenly gazing out across this sort of hinterland and thinking, well, what's ahead of me now? Oh, just getting older and trying to make it through. Or, which is not answering your question, but it explains why in the pub with your 45 to 55 year old mates, when you ask how they're feeling, I mean, if they, if they opened up and told the truth, it would be shocking. And that's, and that's what I did. And that's, and it was shocking. Um, but eventually after quite a lot of work, it feels really, really good to have done it. Yeah. It felt like there was a couple of, of sort of through lines or a couple of 
sort of subjects that just kept kept coming back like through the book and one of them was that the which we'll we'll come back to I think and and let's stay on that subject of sort of status and um and sort of comparison and status and sort of validation and, and that sort of area the other one was kind of career ladders and feeling trapped by the the sort of career ladder or the hamster wheel that you're on um I thought that sort of just kept kept sort of popping back up and then the other one was like mortgages and like the sort of housing housing costs and what that's meant for getting on the housing ladder how difficult that is how much of a burden that puts onto people and so like those just felt like they were like really sort of constant themes through the book but just staying on that status one for a minute so you interviewed Adam Kay who's the doctor who um who wrote that book this is going to hurt and um he described this idea that when he stopped being an NHS doctor and he'd been on this treadmill for many many years of of you know sort of rising up the ranks and he's sat there with his family and he's not a doctor anymore and he's always been a doctor he's always been defined by his career success and then he suddenly just sat there just as a a man who is no longer a doctor right um so do you think that's something that we need to um think more about is just how how do we define ourselves away from job titles and away from the sense of our our own status it's so difficult because yeah so you know doctors have very high rates of of um depression so do lawyers two two of the kind of professions that we're you know we're taught are good professions and you know so what's the answer no one becomes a doctor or a lawyer no but adam talked about you know being funneled from a very early age lawyers you talk to you know they've already kind of doing work placements when they're still at university there's no there's really no simple answer to this for people particularly for people who've already got to to my stage what's really shocking is how 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 little thought is given to you know what you want to do at a young age so you know right now my 15 year old is being asked to set up some work experience for the summer and you know traditional parent might be going well you've got to find your career and choose what you want to do why he's 15 you know what's the point of doing that mm, and yeah. you know trying to encourage sons and daughters to just spend a little bit more time thinking about uh it's not even what they want to do because they might want to be a lawyer or a doctor or whatever it is it just feels certainly in my case and in the case of the people i spoke to that that there's there isn't enough time just sitting sitting with things considering things because of the pressure to always be thinking about the future yeah and it feels like it's some of that's getting worse right like so there's the bit in the book where you talk about someone who's just graduated like a few weeks ago and doesn't really know what they do and just how crushing that feels to them that some of their friends are already in jobs and it's like you have your whole life ahead of you to you know to to get onto the right career and to get the right job at least take a few weeks right now to to figure that out but it, people are really struggling with that you know and, and even like like you mentioned you know with with your kids being sort of uh, sort of pushed into over specialization or being pushed into making decisions about the entirety of your future when you're when you're still a kid and you should you should still be in more of an ex exploratory uh sort of thoughtful mode rather than in a kind of you know doing an execution mode. yeah and it doesn't need to be an extreme you know it's not take five years to find yourself or anything like that but that that guy i spoke to i was i was talking to him and he was asking whether he should do what he described as a panic masters because so he yeah. didn't because he didn't want to have a kind of blank on his CV where it didn't look like he'd done anything. So he was proposing doing a panic masters so that there wasn't a, a year or whatever missing. And I was talking to him just general careers advice for about half an hour. And then I asked, you know, how long this blank had been. And it was like six weeks. And <laughs> that is just such complete pressure, you know, that, that's that's where we are with competition, and it, I can imagine it must be really annoying to have 
me, you know, 46 year old, you know, saying, come on, 23 year old, just take your time, make sure you do something that you're happy about. Or, you know, as you mentioned, banging on about mortgages, don't discuss a mortgage with a 22 year old, because it's a whole, it's so much worse for the next generation as well. Yeah, for sure. It's just So there's two parts to this. There's the small things you can do as an individual to make yourself happier. As, and you're far better at um, you know, that sort of personal, personal way of um, improving yourself than I am. And I'm still really struggling with it. And I, there's only a couple of things that worked and they were really hard. And then there's the huge systemic thing, which is which is not something that individuals can do because I think it, it is annoying saying all this stuff to the younger generation. I know my sons find it really. Don't worry about your A level. Don't worry about your GCSE results, son. Just enjoy life. That's just too much. But we need to. There needs to be a complete systemic change in how we how we raise kids as well. I guess. A lot of us in our forties and older are in a better place to chip away at the systemic factors for the younger generation because we're in charge of HR departments and you know putting this out on podcasts and kind of having some of those conversations about what we can change. I guess just on the on the personal part of that, I liked the bit in the book where you talk about the do you call it the D gratitude journal or something? Oh gosh. You give a list of all the things that you're unhappy about, as well as the gratitude journal. I thought that was really amusing. I don't know if that's a recommended approach to things, but uh, you know, life. The this, you know, we're talking about quite big things like you know, marriage, life, jobs. But there's a lot of really annoying stuff in the world as well. That and I, I, I mean, I, I spend a lot of my day job as a columnist getting quite annoyed. Last week, I was annoyed by how many different toothpastes. Oh, I read, you know, I read that and it like totally, <laughs> I resonated so much with that. It's really <laughs> tight. I mean, who on earth would write 800 words about toothpaste or, you know, all the different <laughs> USB cables and, and it sounds quite puerile and, but it does feel as if life can be very irritating. And I think that sort of stuff chips away. So, um, without any qualifications, I did recommend a de-gratitude journal. My wife writes yeah. a gratitude journal, which um, is which is really lovely, and it it works with her. I'm sounding patronising patronizing now, um, but I I I have stuck. I I still do a de-gratitude journal. Yeah, do you know the thing that I that really worked for me, and it, and it as I said before we started this conversation, I'm. I'm really only, you know, the bit that I really struggled with was getting from sort of step zero where I'm just blinkered and not thinking about things at all to the point step one, you know, where I might be able to pick up one of your books and actually sit and read it is so that so that's the bit where just turning a turning a, a bloke from completely blinkered to okay, I'm I I now need to find ways to make me happier. And the way I did that was with the oldest self-help trick of all, which was the forest bathing, which I know you do. Um, I probably, I think I did it for six months and every single day. And for the first five and a half months, I, I hated it. And it was all I was doing is sitting under a tree in the woods, just worrying about you know whether I should get mortgage insurance you know so it was it was because I'd taken you know the audiobook or the, the Walkman or your podcast out of my ears and I was sitting on the moss worrying and my previously my reaction was to carry on listening to music or something but I really forced myself to do it and and I'll finally after six months the panic stopped and I started to feel better and it is Something that I think a lot of people find very scary or unsettling is the idea of just being alone with your own thoughts, just in whatever form that is. Um, I was talking to someone recently who they said, what do you do? What do you do when you go for a run? So I'm training for a half marathon at the moment. So I do some quite long runs. And um, 
I said, oh, I just run. And they're like, what? There's no podcast in your ears or there's no music. And I'm a, I'm a bigger music fan as, as anybody. But um, I was like, no, I just just think and stuff happens. And, you know, and actually what's interesting is that I'm sure you I'm sure you'll know this, too, is that you often write the best parts of, you know, your book or whatever is when you are just alone with your thoughts and just something crystallizes that you've been working on that morning or whatever. Like I just find that's um, it's actually a very productive thing to have nothing on your mind too, because it actually just kind of sets, sets the stuff that you need to do when you get back to your desk. Isn't, isn't that cheating though, Graham? Cause I, <laughs> I thought, well, I don't Is know. I, I mean, I thought the point of, I mean, it's, they call it forest bathing, but it's, it's kind of meditation really, which I also find really difficult but I didn't think you were supposed to be planning planning your day or a paragraph or something. No, so I'm not planning it and I'm not going there with the intention that that's what's going to happen. But often when I'm going for a run, then what happens is just I can feel my brain just putting things together. So it's not like I'm leaving my desk and saying, I'm stuck on this thing, let me work that out on the run. It just magically happens or just new ideas come or whatever. I just find that like once I put my brain into a really different mode, it just comes up with the stuff that matters a bit more rather than being sort of bereft and stuck in the detail, which, which, you know, sort of can happen when I'm, yeah. when I'm writing. Um, um, a half yeah. marathon is a very midlife thing to do, if I may say. <laughs> very true. I mean, I, it was quite funny. I did, I ran the London marathon about 10 years ago and it did feel like the elephant in the room when you go to when you run the London Marathon, you have to go to like the Excel Centre in Docklands and go around this big exhibition where you pick up your, you know, your sort of race number and all that stuff. And, you know, you have to sort of be there and do it. And um, the, it felt like the subtext of the entire visit to the Excel Centre, which is like an hour, hour and a half that you're there sort of thing. And, you know, I met there was like some Olympians doing signing things. There was like some fun stuff to do when you're there. Um, and a lot of it is just, you know, companies trying to hawk their products on you. But it felt like the subtext of the whole thing is like, we are not going to die soon. <laughs> you know, like whatever age the people who were there, it felt like everybody was just trying to cling on to this idea that we're OK. We're, you know, we're healthy. We're not we're not going to die. We've got we've got a marathon in us. So we're OK. It just it just kind of had a weird there's definitely a weird vibe to that whole thing. I love it. I, I mean, I've I've done all of those. I've done the sort of the the mud races and all of that stuff. But you know, and again, you know, with with a, a male friendship group, but you know, with with all the apps, you know, with the map my run and all of that stuff. And uh, for me now, I'm I'm you know I'm moving along my journey. I now run without any any measuring. I'm not measuring myself. Mm. didn't care yeah it's probably because i'm so old now i just couldn't face it It would just be depressing every week um but you know happiness is deleting my, my run yeah so you actually the time you know we're just talking about the the sort of um the the opposite of the gratitude journal felt like the time that you were the most disgruntled in the book was when you were talking about technology um so do you want to just talk a bit more about that and just your your not really I, yeah, and I've I've seen your um, your brilliant sort of how to control it, and um, and I haven't looked at how you how you empty an inbox yet, but I've got I looked before we had this conversation, and I've got one hundred and twenty thousand emails in my inbox. So um, <laughs> technology has sold to you as you know the sort of you know time saver. Have all this technology and you'll be able to spend more time with your kids. And obviously it hasn't worked out like that on a, on a kind of macro level. We're, we're separated from our kids by the iPad between us. Um, and, you know, we were promised by, you know, I think in the 1930s, was it the 40s, Asimov was predicting that we'd, you know, robots would be doing all the work and we'd be working 10-hour weeks, and it just hasn't happened. So I don't really want to talk about it other than to say I've binned our, our um, clever, what's it called, smart thermostat, because it had it yeah, developed yeah. a mind of its own and was 
deciding when it wanted to heat our house. And I, I battled with it for weeks and then I binned it. And that's the answer. And I also spent a bit of time that some artists had done a kind of an approximation of a post-apocalyptic um, world. And I was a caretaker in this dome that they'd set up. So there was no electricity. Everything had to be grown or recycled. Um, it's just, And it was just, it helped that it was next to a really beautiful lake in a National Trust property. <laughs> it was just... I think you could tear a lot of the stuff down and we'd be happier. But now I'm sounding like an old fart who remembers the days. Mm -hmm. I remember the days when there were only two channels. You know, that's not that's not that's not <laughs> the answer either. Yeah, I mean, and so what's your what's your relationship with your phone like? Because uh, you said that comes a lot up a lot when um, you're interviewing people. Everyone's talking about like the phone is almost like a symbol of work-life balance. Yeah, and I think. I think when I'd finished writing the book, I would have been able to give you an honest answer that it's under control. It's not the most important. You know, I'm, I do have, I do have, we have dinner without our phones, all those things that people say you need to do, no phones in the bedroom, but it's all, it's all gone to pot during the pandemic. I think yeah. I'll write a sequel yeah. to this book, which will just be totally bleak. Because it, it has been, it has been, you know, it's been the, the work from home thing for those who, who have been able to do it, I think has been a revelation. I've, I've spoken to so many blokes who just loved getting to know their families again. Um, but the reality is it's been a very intense period. Uh, we've relied to a huge degree, as we are right now, on technology. Um, it's going to be quite hard to row back from that for sure. Um, there's a couple of quick things I wanted to ask you about before we finish, but just on that thing of um, sort of careers and career ladders. So um, um, my friends Helen Tupper and Sarah Ellis wrote a book called The Squiggly Career, which is all about moving away from the idea of the career ladder. Um, do you have any thoughts about, you know, like how we need to redesign that idea of the career ladder in, in, in terms of it feels like that's the source of a lot of people feeling trapped, isn't it, is, is being on the career ladder. What what can we do differently around just the, the traditional notion of careers? Individually, I I, I mean, I read the, the, the Squiggly book and um, the, the risk with that is is it's just more plate spinning because, um, you know, you've got, you've got more than one side hustle going and it becomes... I mean, in a in an ideal world, you find a thing that you're passionate about, and that's your job. But I'm I'm quite traditional about that. But then I thought that my I had found my passion, and the problem is passions passions change over time. So mm, you know, yeah, I I thought yeah. the ultimate happiness when I was in my twenties was getting a byline in a, a national newspaper, which is just a sort of shallow and egotistical as the people who took jobs because they paid very well um i don't know I, th I think things are going to be changing anyway and i i'm really sorry that i just don't have simple answers but you know jobs for life have, aren't don't really exist anymore and and a lot of the reasons for that are not good um and i, I kind of i do worry quite a bit about the about the future I th I, without getting too too depressing have you got to the bit where i meet the happiest man in britain oh god the yeah. man the loch ness thing have you got a minute yeah I'll yeah so tell, people don't need yeah i've i've actually got two other questions if that's all right as well so tell us about loch ness because i because one of the things i was going to ask you is like do we all just need to move to Loch Ness? Because like, he, he sounds amazing. Um, I'll be quick because I've got to go and pick the kids up in a minute. Isn't that great? Okay, right, Isn't that lovely? Um, <laughs> no, so so happiest guy, I'd spent a whole book talking to miserable people and I'll tell you the ending so your listeners don't need to buy the book. So he, <laughs> he was in his 20s and he'd set up a burglar alarm installation business uh, and had a girlfriend he had a mortgage he was building his company but he spent all day fitting burglar alarms for 
the older people who tend to be the main market for burglar alarms. And they spent the whole coffee break that he shared with them saying, oh, I wish I was your age again. And it was all about this sort of, he had this tidal wave of septuagenarian regret. So he listened to them and thought, I don't want to end up like that. And to cut a fairly middling story short, he finished with the girlfriend, got rid of the mortgage and got rid of the business and spent 30 years living in a caravan next to Loch Ness. And that's, so that's a bit like when self-help gurus say, chuck everything in and find your passion. It's annoying hearing about a guy who's lived Mm. in a caravan for 30 years next to Loch Ness. And you asked, of course, we can't all go and live in caravans next to Loch Ness because they'll wreck it. Um, But what what was amazing about him is that, you know, he's been interviewed by people before and he's always a bit, he's the Nessie hunter, a bit of a weirdo. But he wasn't weird at all. He, he talked to me about the light that changed on the lake because I asked, you know, doesn't it get boring? And he spoke for about five minutes about this changing light and how it made him feel. And I just thought that is, he's, he's living in the moment like everyone always tells you you should. And I've, I often think about that when I'm just walking or, you know, walking from one meeting to the next or getting on a train or... Just if he can find happiness with a change of light and a freezing cold lake in winter in Scotland, then I can find little bits of momentary happiness in my daily life. So we need to bottle what he, he did, not not all go and live next to Loch Ness. Yeah, and he also said something like, didn't he say something like, um, that when the weather changes and stuff, like adventure comes to you? I thought that was a really just a very powerful idea that he's just sat in this one place this one body of water but the adventure's coming because things are changing and like that just feels like a very grounded rooted way of of seeing the world which is yeah extremely powerful he should become some kind of teacher but he's not interested in it he's which is even best that's what i love about him so much he's just very happy so so the 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 final question just to bring this back to where we started was we were talking about the idea that um you know it's up to it's up to men as well as women to be focused on um gender equality and feminism and it's up to women as well as men uh, to be thinking about mental health of of men too, and I just wondered like what you'd. It, there's so much in the book about what you learn about men and their disconnection from their emotions. Is there anything in the book that you found surprising and learnt about women? The one thing, and and this this will sound cheesy, but as I mentioned before, when we when we did the article, the the first article that led to all this, I had expected women to be annoyed with what I was saying, angry, um, which was really wrong of me because as I said, it was, it was the, it was really the opposite of that. And, um, I, I'll mention briefly that I, I wrote a part of it about, I wrote a piece about men failing to address, you know, their physical and mental health. Um, jokey little column and one of the readers forced her husband to read it because he'd been having a niggle on his chest and he had life-saving heart surgery two weeks after he finally went to get a checkup and the you know he he had dismissed his wife as a as someone who was nagging him but obviously all she really did was love him and want him to look after himself and he needed to hear it from a random stranger in a newspaper before he listened. So, you know, we knew it already, and it's, I'm not going to make any, any generalisations here because that is terrifying, but I think, you know, women want men to address their issues, you know, for, for really positive reasons. And as I said, a lot of us live in a unit anyway. We live with each other. And women have made, oh, here I go with a generalisation, 
but you know women are, are are better in general at listening to podcasts well-being podcasts thinking about their lives talking to their friends and men tend in their middle life to sort of set off on a kind of grumpy insular not talking about their feelings rose the willingness the, the enthusiasm with which w- women responded to what i've written and then forced their partners to to read what i've written has been you know it shouldn't have been the surprise but it has been yeah so um let's bring this to a close so you you said there that you'd you'd given us the ending so people didn't need to go and buy the book but Maybe this is the perfect sort of um, allegory for the whole thing is it, it's about the journey, not the destination, right? There's, there's so much throughout the book. So the book is Man Down. Um, do you want to just let people know where they can find you? And um, obviously you've got your Sunday Times columns and everything as well. So maybe just where, where can people follow you and read more of, of your work, Matt? Well, that's it. I don't, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just siloed in a, in a newspaper but um, I have had some amazing messages on on the Twitter, on the DM, and I always try to respond um, in an entirely unqualified, unprofessional way. And if anyone comes at me with really difficult stuff, I'll just forward it to you. I'll fill up your inbox, see how you like it. <laughs> Sounds great. Matt, so, thanks so much for being thanks here. Thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. So there you go, Matt Rudd. I really enjoyed the book. And um, I think I was, you know, slightly nervous about talking to Matt because I think sometimes it can seem like if you're talking about men's issues, you're sort of somehow prioritising them or you are seeming to belittle women's issues or stuff that affects women. So I think it's pretty clear from that conversation, really, that, um, you know, these things need to be on the table and hand in hand. And there's a lot that men need to do to um, really be allies around feminism and there's lots that women need to do around men's mental health too it just feels unfortunate that it's so difficult to have those kind of conversations for sort of fear of being seen to side with one side of an argument or another the whole time but really enjoyed talking to Matt and there's some really good stuff that we didn't get into in the book just around some of the kind of reshaping of not just the whole stuff around shared parental leave but also some of the stuff around women taking career breaks and how we need to kind of reframe that to be seen as do you know what if if you've taken three years off and you've you know gone and and brought up your kid the extra skills that you get from that we should be celebrating that on people's cvs rather than looking at it as gaps or deficits and so on so i just think there's so much in the book just in terms of little um thoughts and observations that can really influence you know how we see the world and obviously the stuff around aviva's approach to share parental leave i just thought was really worth highlighting as we had that conversation so um yeah shout out to aviva as well and others uh, like them so i just want to say um a big thank you as ever to Um, Emily and Pavel, my team on the podcast for making everything happen. And also to our sponsors on the show, Think Productive. So if you're interested in learning more about how Think Productive can help you to get your team to a place of doing their best work and making space for the stuff that matters, then head to thinkproductive.com to find out more. I'm also available, by the way, to run keynotes and events around the topics of work-life balance and around my book, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. And at the moment, I'm not sort of taking on talks around the new book topic, kindness, but I'm going to be doing a bit more of that and kind of sharing some of my thoughts on kindful leadership as we sort of head through the year. So if you're interested in me coming to talk about kindness within your business, then um, drop me a line anyway, and we'll get you on the list. And once that starts to develop, I'll let you know more. Um, As always, if you want to just drop me an email and tell me what's up and what's happening in your part of the world, it's Graham at thinkproductive.co.uk and my mailing list as ever is if you just go to graymalcott.com forward slash links you can get the little uh, sign up thing there for my weekly rev up for the week email so one productive or positive idea every Sunday 4.05pm UK time ready for the week ahead last week's was about Miles Davis kind of blue and how he recorded the whole album in just seven hours Uh, last week as in as I'm recording this I think it's a couple of weeks ago 
actually on the uh, email going out. But yeah, often, you know, more often than not, actually, I'm writing it just a couple of days before. So it, they're fairly fresh ideas. They're fairly in the moment. And often people say, hey, that's just popped into my head. And it's really interesting doing it, actually, getting that sense that there's so much of our human experience, which is just so universal, you know, people having the same kind of thoughts, people feeling tired, people feeling inspired, all at the same time, all around the world, and just kind of going with the seasons often. So that's been really fascinating just to, to do it as a regular practice. Um, I don't batch them up. I don't do six or seven weeks at once and then not think about it. I literally am writing every week and it's quite helpful actually. It's, it's been good for my writing practice too. So that's Rev Up for the week if you go to grahamwalcott.com and we'll be back in two weeks time with another episode. Some really good ones in the pipeline and uh, looking forward to sharing those with you. So see you again in two weeks. Keep subscribed. Until then, take care. Bye for now.